it's summertime, and that means there's a lot of travel and a bit of an inconsistency in schedules. For me, that means that I'm out of the pulpit uh, a couple of times throughout the summer months. So for these weeks where there's not a current series recording for the podcast, I thought I would go back in the archives and pull some sermons from a series I did preaching through the book of James. I preached this series of sermons in the year 2020, and as you well remember, 2020 was a very difficult year with the COVID-19 pandemic. Our church had come back to in-person services uh, in May of that year, and I began this series in August. We were trying to figure out the new normal with all the restrictions and difficulties of uh, the pandemic. James begins this letter with that admonition, that instruction to count all things joy uh, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But on that August Sunday morning of 2020, I had no idea that about 10 weeks later, I would be laying in a hospital room uh, with COVID-19 so weak that a conversation that lasted more than a, a couple of words was a great labor for me. I remember laying in the hospital bed during that time and, and just brokenhearted and, and crying out before the Lord. Uh, because when you're, when you're sick like that, it's hard to imagine a day when you won't be sick. And I, I could not imagine a day, as weak as I was, that I'd ever be able to preach the gospel again. I'd never be able to string sentences together and, and, uh, and proclaim the Word of God. God was so faithful in those days, teaching me in, in real terms and in real ways uh, the lessons that this sermon proclaims. I do hope today, as you're listening, uh, that this word uh, from James chapter 1, the first 11 verses, count it all joy, will continue to be a blessing in 2023, and it will be a blessing to you. I look forward in the weeks to come returning to 2 Corinthians, but for today, let's hear from God from James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Word of God has to say. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and, and let the, the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. In 1913, Eleanor uh, Porter wrote a book titled 
Pollyanna. Now, that book would become a major work in children's literature. It would be, it would, she would follow it up with, a, with a, a sequel, and then many other authors would continue the story in publishing other books. In fact, I think the latest of which was uh, published not too long ago in 1997. Of course, multiple uh, movies were made of it, and some of you, maybe your, your first uh, exposure to it was by the Disney movie by the, by the same name. If you don't know the story, Pollyanna is a, the, the title character. She is an orphan and she's taken in by her very stern, very cold, very negative, wealthy aunt. And she's brought to live at her aunt's house, who doesn't really want her, but feels obligated to take her in. And Pollyanna has a over, um, an overabundance of optimism. Everything she sees the world through cheery, rosy glasses. And in the book, she's the, she's the hero because her, her optimistic view, her overwhelming optimism changes the town, it changes the community, even changes her mean old aunt. And everybody has a different perspective because Pollyanna has such an optimistic view. Now, it, it has had such, that book and that, that story has had such a significant impact upon our culture that Pollyanna can be a descriptive word now. So somebody might say of you that you have a Pollyanna outlook on things. And the interesting thing is, though, in the book, Pollyanna is a, is a hero and is seen as a positive thing. If you are called Pollyannic or you're saying that your view is, is Pollyanna, that's not a positive thing today. Because what somebody's saying about you is that you are seeing the world um, in, in an overly optimistic view, but you are not taking into the account of the reality of evil and the brokenness of this world. What James writes in the first chapter when he says, count all things joy. If you're not careful, you might think he's just being, having a Pollyanna outlook. If people are dying of, uh, of a virus, count it all joy. Have a great day. You lose your job, you have no money for groceries, count it all joy. Life is great. This week you went to the doctor and you got a diagnosis that has rocked your world. Count it all joy. It's wonderful. And if that's the way you read first chapter of James, it'll be a very disturbing thing because one of two things will happen. Either you'll try to do that and eventually the reality of the brokenness of this world will overwhelm you or you'll reject it as being silly. That's ridiculous. It, it doesn't take into account that there's, there's disease, there's brokenness, there's disaster. There are, there are trials that are devastating to our life. I want to tell you that James, when he writes to the Christians in, in, his, uh, in his letter, is not being a Pollyanna. He's not ignoring the fact that you have trouble in your life. He's not ignoring the fact that there's death and disease and disaster and all sorts of things that come our way. In fact, when he, when he uses that phrase, various trials, he's just recognizing that as long as we live in a broken world, your life will be consumed in continual, a continuality of, of things that come in your life that are difficult, that are unpleasant, that are hard. You will experience various trials and difficulties. In fact, the reality of it is if right now you could come up here and you say, Pastor, listen, everything in my life is perfect. I mean, there's more money than I need that's in my bank account. Praise the Lord. My kids always behave. Praise the Lord. My marriage is perfect. We never have a, a, an, an unsettling word. That's wonderful. All the, the flowers at your house bloom and your grass is always green whether you weather, order it or not. That's wonderful. But my word to you is just wait a minute. Because various trials and difficulties 
will come. James is not ignoring that. In fact, he's recognizing that, approaching that, and he's writing a word to Christians that as we approach and deal with the various trials in our lives, our attitude toward them is different from the rest of the world. And the admonition, the command that he gives is count it all joy. Not because we're ignoring the realities of a broken world, but we're to count it all joy because of the promise of God in eternity of our salvation and the provision of God in the present. And so I want to divide this, this, this passage in these ways to think about how we are to approach various trials with joy. Number one, we recognize that God uses suffering, that there is purpose even in difficult moment. There's purpose in suffering. Secondly, there is, there is confidence in faith that when we believe God, that belief in God changes how we see everything around us. And then lastly, there's peace in provision. That when you are provided for by the God who owns everything, when you are taken care of by the God who created all of the heavens and all of the earth, there's peace in that, that you can have joy, even in various trials, knowing that God is going to take good care of you. But let's begin with purpose in suffering. We really see that in the first four verses. In fact, that's the, that's the real weight of the argument as James makes it, to count it all joy. And he immediately moves into why we should count various trials and count all of those things as joy. He says in verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing or because, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The foundation of why and how we can count various trials with joy is that we recognize that those trials in our life produce endurance. The word that James uses in verse 3 is, is, is translated as produce, but the, the, the Greek word that it comes from, the, the, the history of its etymology there is interesting. It, 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 it means the, the, the oldest understanding of the word means that it was meant to, to cause a state to be, to, to bear down on the ground, almost a sense of rubbing something until it conformed to its intended purpose, like, like taking a, a dull piece of, a, of metal and, and pressing it into the grinding will until it was sharp or tasting a piece of wood and, 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 and sanding it until it was prepared for and ready to be used as a tool. That, that, that work, that pressing in, that difficulty that you placed on it has produced to it something that is useful and good. The imagery is of, is of pressing into a material of, or repeatedly striking a material to fashion it into the desired shape or for a particular purpose. Friends, endurance does not come from intention or desire. Endurance does not come from intention or desire. If you want to run a marathon, you can intend to do that, but that doesn't mean you can do that. If you just desire to run a marathon, does it mean that tomorrow you can? Aren't there a lot of things that we intend or desire to do, but we never get around to doing it? Eating better, fixing up that the house that you, you know, the things in your house that you, that, uh, that, that seem to go undealt with and all those sort of things. No, endurance doesn't come from intention or desire. Endurance comes from effort and work. You know, when we watch the Olympics, 
every four years or every two years. And we see those wonderful human uh, uh, perseverance stories where you've got the, the athlete that, that during the race or during the event has something happen to them that pushes them back or, or causes them distress. And then at the very end, they, they, they come out of the reserve that they, that, 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 uh, that, that, that they, they have and they just press forward and the crowd cheers because we know the adversity that they've experienced and they press on to the very end and, and they win the race and we celebrate that and we go, oh, what a great athlete. What we must understand in that moment, that pressing in and that, that digging into the deep reserves wasn't just because they desired to win the gold medal. That came from months and years and years of practice and endurance training so that when the moment of the race came, they had some reserve to draw from. Endurance doesn't come from intention or desire. It comes from effort and in, from work. So in verse four, James recognizes that the purpose of endurance is that we might be able to complete the task. Endurance assures your ability to complete the task. And so when, when James gives the instruction to count it all joy, it's not because trials are good times. It's not because difficulties are happy moments. It's not because we would ever look forward to such events. It's not because there, there were moments that you would ever, ever, ever want to repeat in your life. The instruction to count it all joy is for what the trials produce that they produced, that we might be perfect and complete, that we might finish the right race, that we might be faithful to the very end. And that, James recognizes, is worthy of counting what has produced that as great, great joy. God makes use of our various trials to build and grow your endurance. And so when we approach those things, James says, count it all joy. Not only do trials produce endurance, but there's a second dynamic to that, and that, that is that trials free you from encumbrances. That's the second product of trials that helps us endure and be perfect and complete. And that is to be free from the things that encumber. This weekend, our high school graduates had their graduation ceremony, and many of them are preparing to, to move to college in just a few short uh, weeks. And even our college students that are among us now are excited about going back to their campuses and and returning to their friends. And as I was thinking about uh, all those graduates out there, I was remembering my own college days when I moved into my college dorm room. And I was able to fit everything I owned into my little bitty blue Ford, or my Mercury Tracer. It's a little bitty compact car. Now I would fill it up the whole back seat to the roof and the passenger seat all the way to the roof. But that was, I mean, that wasn't just some of my stuff. That was every bit of my stuff. And when I got ready to move out of the dorm at the end of the semester or whenever we need to go home, it took me about an hour and everything I had was back in that blue Mercury Tracer and off the road I went. Now you understand today, having, having lived in a house for, for several years and having a family of six, if I want to move tomorrow, I can't do that in an hour. It's going to take me a day or two, amen? It'll take me a year or two to move into somewhere new, right? There's some things we still hadn't put up on the wall in our house, and we've been in it seven years. I mean, it just takes a while for a family of our size with as much stuff that we have to move. The less you have, the less encumbered you are. And so there's a reality that when trials come, one of the products they produce in your life is you let loose of those things that are encumbering you, that are ensnaring you, that are weighing you down. 
Trials compel you to hold on to what saves and to jettison everything else. It's why the writer of Hebrews writes in, verse, in chapter 12, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the, and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is a great temptation, friends, to hold on to the things that do not matter and have zero eternal value. James is pointing to the blessing of God in trials, that he separates from us these things that will keep us from enduring, that will keep us from pressing on, that will encumber us from becoming complete and perfect. And so because they produce endurance and because they set us free from those things that encumber us, James says, oh, friends, when you experience trials, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Then he says something else. He says in verse 5, he talks about this confidence that we have in faith. He says in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, anybody lack wisdom today? Raise your hand. The rest of you, I'm going to pray for you. All right. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and let it be given and it will be given to him. James is pointing to reality that we have confidence before God in faith, meaning that we trust and believe that God always provides for his will. Verse 5 may seem disjointed from James's encouragement to count all things joy, but, but I believe he is fleshing out further the understanding that God is working to prepare and keep us for the day of his glory. The question of verse 5 is not a recognition of inferiority, but a recognition of reality. It's not if you lack wisdom. In fact, I think what he's getting at there is there's a recognition that all of us lack wisdom. Wisdom to know what is right. Wisdom to know how to live out your faith in a broken world. Wisdom to how to apply biblical truths to everyday situations. Listen, there is no book that has already been written right now that I can go read chapter and verse and figure out how to pastor a church during a pandemic. Just not there. Even in past pandemics that we've had, 1918, those sort of things, there was just different situations, different knowledge. And so in every meeting I have been in and every decision that we have made, at some point in those meetings, we say, you know what? We're just trying to figure it out as we go. Do I need wisdom during these days? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Do you need wisdom during these days? The absolute answer to that is yes. Thus, this verse should not be read as applying only to a few, but as instruction for all. The point that James is making is more than just that we all lack wisdom. The greater point here is that God will abundantly provide for us when we lack wisdom. That's why he says in verse 5, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God will respond to that request with generosity. In other words, he'll give us more than we think we need or even ask for. And he says he'll give us without reproach, meaning not holding it against us or in shame of us. God abundantly and without complaint provides all that we need to be obedient and faithful to his will. I just think of how a parent responds to the plea of a child for help. Every good parent desires for their children to succeed and readily and joyfully and generously is ready to help when asked. In fact, if you're raising children today, there have been moments 
when you tried to help your children and they have rebuffed that and said, I'll do it myself. And there's just something in you that says, I, I want to assist you, want to help you. And I think that's the dynamic here. When we ask God for wisdom, it's generous, abundant, and without reproach. God provides for his will, and godly wisdom requires that we believe God. Godly wisdom requires faith. James goes on to say that God, receiving God's wisdom is abundantly received by those who ask in faith and not found by those who are without faith. Now, if you're honest with yourself when you read this verse, it may be a bit alarming to you if you have ever struggled with doubt, which would be most of us. The doubting person here that James is speaking of is not the one who trusts God even when struggling with doubt. Rather, he's, he's talking about the one who does not believe God. Now, the distinction between this, I think we see most clearly in the Gospel of Mark. You may remember in the Gospel of Mark, Mark recounts a story where a father whose son was very, uh, was very sick came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, if you're able to heal my son, would you heal him? And Jesus responds with a rebuke. And he says, what do you mean if I am able? With God, all things are possible. And what followed that rebuke is, I think, one of the most honest responses in all of Scripture. In Mark chapter 9, the, the, the boy's father responded to Jesus with these words. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Now, that's not a man who did not trust God. It's not a man who was doubting that God was able. He's saying, I believe. And yet at the same time, there's a struggle within me to believe fully. Here, James is speaking to the one who asks God but does not believe that God is able. So when he talks about the one who is without faith, he's talking about the one who says, well, you know, we'll pray perfunctory, but I don't believe that God is able, don't believe that God is present. One commentator wrote, he said, a request that does not take God at his word, that doubts either his ability or his trustworthiness, is presumptuous and worthless and is an affront Without faith, it is impossible to please him. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seeks him. You see, the one who does not believe that God can give wisdom is also the one who does not believe that God is able to keep his promise of salvation. To receive the wisdom abundantly and generously and without reproach requires faith. And when we believe God, it gives us a confidence, trusting that God will provide for us. And that allows us to count all things joy, even in the midst of various trials. And then James moves to one other subject. And he talks about the rich folks and the poor folks. And I think that leads us to an understanding that there is peace in provision. We see that in verse 9 through the end. He says, let the, humble, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. Now, we'll start with the, the, the humble brother. And, I, and I, I think that we see here that in poverty, we experience God's mighty and generous provision. The principle here of counting all things joy continues in these verses with a word about how Christians should respond to their earthly circumstances, specifically here being rich or being poor. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to at least say a word about our perspective of rich or poor. I, in just case you're wondering, when I think about myself, I never put myself in the rich column. And I suspect most of you don't either. And the reason why we don't do that is because we can always find somebody who is wealthier than we are, right? 
Somebody's got a bigger house, a nicer car, better clothes, or whatever it is that, that you, you sort of judge wealth by. There's always somebody out there that's, that's wealthier. But we need to be very clear with one another. When we consider, when on, the, on a scale of history, on a scale of biblical perspective, on the scale of the present reality, there's not a soul in here that doesn't fit on the rich side of this column. If you have more than one pairs of shoes, you're rich today. If you rode here today in an air-conditioned vehicle or a vehicle at all, you're rich today. If your home has air conditioning, you're rich today. If you have a home, you're rich today. And maybe the most, uh, the most um, decisive of them all, if you have not known what it is to go hungry and not have any prospect of food, you are rich. So we're going to talk about the poor folks, but just understand that when we get to rich folks, that's more um, a pointing to, to us. But, but James begins here with, with speaking of those who are who are of humble circumstances. And the reality of it is, I think that if we were to, um, if we were to say which, which side we want to be on, do you want to be on the poor side or the rich side? Most of us would say, well, I would certainly prefer to be in the rich column. There's some niceties in the rich column. There's, there's some comforts that come with earthly wealth. But, but here James seems to turn those things upside down. And he says in verse nine, let the humble brother or the poor brother uh, um, let the, the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And in contrast, let the rich uh, man glory in his humiliation. What's he talking about here? Well, I think what he's getting at that here is that those of humble circumstances experience more clearly God's provision, God's providence, and God's grace. Those of humble circumstances have less material things that be can become encumbrances to obeying the Lord. What the poor lack in material blessings, they have in spiritual riches. And so I think what James is saying here is that if, if God has provided for you in humble circumstances, count it joy that you experience more than others the gracious and abundant provision of God. That's, your, that's, that's the glory that they receive, that they're, 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 they're high position, that they see more beautifully, more clearly the provision of God. And then for those of you who are of wealth, and that's who I think I'm preaching to this morning, he says, rejoice in your humility. James says in wealth, we are to rejoice in humility for Christians who have been blessed with much material blessing. James says we are to glory in our humility. Like the poor are to rejoice in their spiritual riches, the rich are to walk humbly in their faith, knowing that it will not last and it has no benefit beyond the world. Now, some commentators think that what James is pointing to here is that when those wealthy, when those comforts of wealth evaporate, that it's painful and it's difficult, but that would be counted amongst the various trials. And James is saying in those moments, those who have, who have a lot of things and see them go away are reminded again that they have no purpose, that they have been set free of those encumbrances and uh, have, have been, uh, been used to uh, cause them to endure to the end. I do think it's, it's uh, instructional that James gives more attention to the wealthy because we tend to struggle more with trusting in material things. But for the Christian, wealth is in this world is not what gives joy or comfort. The rich are reminded to possess their wealth with the knowledge that it is fleeting and will not last. And like the, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches 
and the two become equal in faith before Jesus. The wealth rejoice in humility. Now, when you think about counting all things joy, I think what that produces and what ought to produce in Christians' hearts and minds is a conflicting attitude toward trials. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean a positive tension in our approach to trials. On one hand, I think we will be thankful for the event. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. That Christians, when we experience trials and difficulties, it will produce in us an appreciation, a thankfulness for what the trial or difficulty has produced in our life. And at the same time, We are also, just in the reality of the flesh, very appreciative that the event is over. So that's the conflict, a thankfulness for the event and thankfulness that the event is over. Here's where we are. I don't think there is a soul in this room that ever desires, would ever pray that they would lose their job. Losing your job upends your family. It is a disastrous financial event. Nobody would desire that. Nobody desires to get or receive a bad medical diagnosis. Nobody would ever um, want to experience or or sign up or pray for the experience of the the, the grief that comes with losing a loved one to death or, or our house fire that destroys all your earthly possessions or a failed business that ruins you financially or or being attacked by an opponent or any other trials that are part of living in a broken world. Nobody says, bring it on. I love that stuff. To the world, these are just bad things to get over. But to the Christian, these are moments we experience. To the Christian, these are moments in which we experience more than any other time God's grace, God's provision, God's care, and God's love. Now, if you've got some hours, I'll make us a cup of coffee and we can sit around. And we can talk about some of the very, very difficult moments that I've had and my family's experienced. And we can talk about some of the very difficult moments that you've experienced. And one of the things that I know to be true in my own life is in those moments, my prayer life was more powerful than in moments of ease. And I can tell you how in those moments I witnessed more beautifully, more perfectly, more clearly God's provision for us than in any other time when it wasn't as difficulty, difficult. And as a result, when I think back on those moments, I think back on them with great appreciation. Thank you, God, for what you did in my life. Thank you how you provided for me. Listen, in the way I pastor today, in the way I parent today, in the way I relate to my wife today, many of those things have been fashioned and, 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 and changed by the moments that were difficult in previous trials and various troubles. So I'm deeply grateful for them. Now, at the same time, I'm so glad they're over. Amen. Oh, I wouldn't want to go back to them. And so there's that conflict, that tension. I don't want to go back. I don't want to experience them again. I, would, I don't desire for any of those moments to come again, though I know that there'll be trials and various difficulties that will come. But I am deeply thankful for each of them, for what they have produced in my life. Therefore, James says to that, Count it all joy. 
God is working to give us endurance and to make us perfect and complete that we might know his grace now and perfectly his salvation and presence in the age to come. Listen, friends, we got some troubles today. We've got some troubles that have been brought on by COVID-19, but for that matter, we had troubles that predated and will be the year after. COVID-19 is a thing for the history books. You've got some various trials and some difficulties in your life. Some of them are really bad. Some of them are more of vexation. And to all of you, the Word of God says, count it all joy. For God is using those moments to build in you endurance. God is using those moments to build in you a confidence of faith. God is using those moments in your life to to see how God is providing for you, both when you have a lot of stuff and even in humble circumstances. God is making a way. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.